Well, would you join me in prayer? Lord, thank you for your word that's living and active. And I pray that you would work in and through that word this evening to touch our hearts, to speak to us, to show us who you are, and help us to know how to respond to you. Be with me as I try and speak these words and get to the heart of what it is you're trying to say to us. Amen. One of the the children's books that we read, at least our younger two kids, is called Two Eggs, Please. Is anyone familiar with Two Eggs, Please out there, parents? Okay. It's written by Sarah Weeks and illustrated by Betsy Lewin. And the book is set in a diner. I imagine it's like a New York diner or something like that. But uh, anyway, various anthropomorphic animals come in. So you've got like hippos and foxes and snakes and squirrels and all kinds of stuff. And they all order, two eggs, please. But they all order it differently. You know, so it's too hard-boiled, too over-easy, too scrambled. And of course, the snake takes them raw. Anyway, they all order the different things. And I guess the message of the story is summed up in the tagline, different, but the same. In other words, people are very different on the outside, but there's a commonality. We are very much alike on the inside. We're a lot more alike than we are unalike. And, and that is really saying a lot for a human being because people come in all kinds of shapes and sizes. We make up different cultures. We have a wide variety of experiences and personalities. On the outside, we're very, very different. And it's not just on the outside, is it? It's, it's the way that we perceive the world depending on where you were born and when you were born and what has happened in your life. And yet, and yet, at the foundational core of our human existence, for all of our complexities, we really seem to desire the same basic things. We want to know that we have some purpose in the world. Everybody does. Anthropologists tell us that that runs across cultures, from tribal cultures to supposedly sophisticated Western cultures, it doesn't matter. People need to know that they have a role in their community. We want to know that we belong. We want to know that we can be loved and that we have someone to share our love with. And all human beings so far, there's not been any exceptions to this rule, all human beings seem to be uh, desire something bigger than themselves, to be a part of something bigger than themselves. And, and so even people who wouldn't want anything to do with God, the most hardcore atheists still want something to do with a certain ideology or a way of thinking or a philosophy. And scripture implies that what all humans long for in our essence and in our core is a relationship with the living God. That's what scripture would say about that longing. And according to scripture, and to history, God himself shares that longing for relationship. So strong is God's commitment to relationship with us that he became flesh in the person of Jesus to show the world exactly what God is like, to reveal his character, and to rescue us from the barriers that stand in the way of our relationship, barriers like sin and death 
and shame. Now, unfortunately, the barriers between us and God are pretty deeply ingrained. I have pretty much grown up in church, had a few years of hiatus, but I am pretty familiar with the trope that God loves me and created me and has a good future for me. But this guy, (laughs) with all of my experiences and failures and knowing my own heart, I really struggle to believe that 24-7. To believe it in a way that's more than cognitive. To, to live as if it were true. And you might resonate with that if you know what I'm talking about. Like, there's a barrier there from fully embracing that, could I really be that loved? Like, I get it. All, you, all these other people are really great, but could I really be that loved? So that's one of the barriers. And then the other set of barriers, and I'll just be overly general, is that there's just vast social structures that are set up against a lot of different people, right? There's just vast inequities, and our whole world is set up to prop up some kinds of people and to bring other kinds of people down, and it's really difficult to see that we are all loved by God and that he wants a relationship with us. So in the book of Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7, you've got Jesus teaching, and, and, and he's got this crowd of people who begin to collect and to follow him from a bit of a distance. And this group of people had been oppressed, social structure, by the Roman Empire. But even worse, uh, these were people who were also likely looked down upon by their own religious leaders. These are the types of people who weren't particularly noteworthy for their religious piety, They probably weren't very socially powerful, and judging by the amount of sick and wounded and diseased among them, they probably had this nagging sense that maybe, just maybe, they had these problems because God might be mad at them or something. That was kind of a popular belief, even though it's not a biblical belief. These are probably a crowd of people who thought that they were about as far away from God as a person could get. But Jesus is beginning to change everything for these people. They may not know yet in this part of the story that Jesus is the Son of God, God in the flesh, but they have come to believe that he's at least a guy who is from God. And why would they believe that? Because he's doing all this kind of God stuff. He's healing people and casting out demons, and and he's, he's... doing all of this stuff with a mere word or a touch or a look, and it's amazing. Uh, He's a holy man to them with great authority, and he's hanging out with them, and that makes them feel really good. So Jesus goes up on this hillside, and he begins to teach this crowd who is formed around him. This great teacher is taking the time to address this group of relative nobodies, And he's saying some amazing things to them, like flourishing are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Most of the crowds likely believed that only the super pious or the religious elite would inherit the kingdom of God or, or be part of God's reign, but Jesus is saying something quite different. He's saying that the qualification 
for entrance into the family of God, into the movement of God's kingdom, is not status or religious piety or education. It is a healthy understanding of our desperate need for God himself. Our desperate need for God himself. That's awesome. That means, hey, crowds, you belong. If you say that I I need some help in my life from God, you belong. And Jesus continues his teaching by declaring more and more good news. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the humble and the meek. And on it goes. And Jesus is just throwing his arms around this group of people, including you and me. And he's saying, you belong. You belong. Even you, where you're at, not having it all squared away, you belong And as he goes along, he he begins to call out the types of qualities we will develop when we begin to trust in Jesus. So things like hunger and thirst for being rightly related to people. That's one of the things when you hang out with Jesus long enough, you begin to develop that desire. And you begin to develop a a desire for, for mercy and purity of heart and being a peacemaker in the world. And just as Jesus has the attention of these crowds and has our attention by all of this graceful speech, he then, he then shifts the attention, right? He shifts his language from the third person, blessed are those, and he starts with the second person, blessed are you. So now it's like, I was as part of this crowd, now he's looking at me, and now he's looking at you, and he's saying, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Hey, rejoice and be glad, for in the same way, you know what, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. But guess what? Your reward in heaven is great, and that means that it can't be taken away. And all of this All of this leads to the section of Jesus' teaching that we're going to cover tonight in Matthew 5, 13 through 16. He's looking at the sea of people who are just beginning to imagine themselves as part of his family, and Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by people. You, my friends, are the light of the world. A city on a hill, it can't be hidden. Like, nobody lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. But you put it on a lampstand, and then it gives light to everyone in the house. So therefore, let your light shine before people, that they might see your good works, and then glorify your Father who's in heaven. So Jesus has just said those words to this group of uh, of people. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Imagine, if you will, if it brings it home a little better for you, if you are at the concert of your favorite band, or maybe uh, front row seats at your favorite sporting events, and you're just there as part of the crowd, maybe you're singing along, either playing your favorite song, or, or, or your team's doing really well, and you're cheering, and you are part of the crowd, and all of a sudden, the lead singer of the band Scoon, get up here. I want you to play with us. Or Pete Carroll says, Randy, come on. I got a spot for you on the team. 
or Teta says to John, Arsenal need you, and they do, they probably need you, John. So, you know, but you know what I'm saying, like you're, you're, in, you're in the audience, and all of a sudden you are called on to participate. I have a spot for you. I want you to be part of what's going on. And before we go any further in the text, I think we need to get a better understanding of what Jesus' first century audience would have maybe understood when he called them things like salt and light. Because I've gotta be honest, from my 21st century perspective, being called sodium chloride isn't a great like compliment. And I'm not sure quite what to do with being the light of the world. Like, I'm not glowing. So what is this, what is this meaning here? Well, it would be helpful to know that in the ancient world, in the first century, salt and light were viewed as extremely valuable and in some ways elemental. First century Roman historian Pliny the Elder, of which there's a great IPA named after as well, uh, wrote that the most useful things on earth, check this out, Pliny says, the most useful things on earth are salt and light. All right, so this is a famous teacher in the first century, so this is the kind of buzz that's going around. Jesus is picking up on these things. Uh, salt was associated in the Old Testament with wisdom and purity and covenant loyalty. Those are qualities of God, and also to, uh, to season sacrifices to God. And then also in just colloquial terms, not religious terms, salt is a preservative, and it prevented things from decaying. Salt in the first century was so valuable that at times Roman soldiers were paid in salt. Interesting. So in terms of Jesus calling people salt, we may see that he's calling his disciples, his followers, this crowds of people extremely valuable. And we're to be set apart in a way that prevents the world from decay while also adding some spice and some flavor to the world. And in the same way, light is also a metaphor. It's used for truth, for God's presence. Israel being the light to the nations. And maybe the most powerful association with light is Jesus' statement in John chapter 8, verse 12, where he says, I am the light of the world. And in that one statement, Jesus is making a claim to be deity, to offer the world salvation and truth. That is serious business. Pliny, the elder's words about salt and light being the two two most useful things on earth sound a bit like an understatement when compared to what Jesus is saying. And, And in the context, salt and light are signs of salvation and peace and God's presence and God's goodness. He says to his followers, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Now, there's two things I want to point out in that passage. First, there are some apparent warnings in the text. And over the years, um, it's been interpreted in a lot of different ways. You can find some really weird stuff out there. Uh, So let me just read Jesus' actual words. If the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by people. Now sometimes people have preached that you should be very afraid at that statement. Don't lose your saltiness, or you might lose your salvation, or you might lose your life. So get out there, and make sure you're doing a difference for Jesus. And that usually means evangelism, and that usually only means telling people about 
heaven and hell and Jesus, okay? That's how that's often been interpreted. Jesus also says, nobody lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. No way, they put lights on lampstands, so it gives light to all the people in the house. So let your light shine, that's your job now, go do it. But here's the thing. Ancient people knew, and we know, that salt doesn't get unsalty. Like, like it's salt, it's the definition of it. And if it were to become unsalty, it would cease to be that molecular makeup. Like, it's, it's just, it just is salty. I mean, one might say salt that's kept in the shaker doesn't do a lot, but it's still salt. It doesn't cease to become salt, and light can't suddenly become darkness, or guess what? It just wouldn't be light anymore. Uh, you, you can try and cover it up, you can try and hide the light, but if you're the light, and Jesus says you are the light of the world, then, then that's, just, that's just what you are. Jesus is not trying to say that you've got to go try and do certain things in order to stay in his favor. He's encouraging us to be who he says we are. To be who he says we are. You see the distinction there? Like, in Confucianism and Greek thinking, Greek philosophy, the way to communicate something like that would be, here's the standard, live up to it. And in Hebrew thought, and what Jesus is getting at is, here's a statement of reality, you are the light of the world, you are the salt of the earth, be who you are. Be who you are. Be who you already are. That's, that's a vastly different mind change than you constantly having to earn it and to strive after it. And instead, it's like live into the reality of what Jesus has already declared about you. You are the salt. You are the light. And that leads me to my second observation. Jesus says you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Not you should try to be or you should try and figure out how to be the salt of the earth or the light of the world. You just are. And that's really good news. Live into your identity. How do we do that? Well, as we surrender to Jesus and trust that the ways that he, he has for us to live, it's not only like makes the most sense and is the best way to live, but it's also a real way that we're able to live into his power and become the kinds of people who are invaluable to the world. Salt and light actually making a positive impact, a positive difference in our world. Preservative and truth-bearing, bearers, bearers of shalom for the world. I think of I think of Francis Collins, who helped map the human genome and was instrumental in the coronavirus vaccine and all of his research on it. I mean, the guy's a, a world-famous, you know, molecular biologist guy and, and, and a deeply committed Christian, and he's being salt and light by being a good scientist. He's not out there waving signs and being weird. He's just doing a really good job at serving the world through his craft. And, and it doesn't have to be a big name like that. It can be uh, the, the small ways that we serve a friend or a spouse or a neighbor. The things that often go unseen is, is a saltiness and it's a light in our communities. That's what this is talking about. Being Christ-like in the places where God has you. 
The kingdom of God, the movement of Jesus, in other words, it doesn't exist in mere words and ideas. Like, if we're just talking about following Jesus, if we're just talking about following Jesus, we won't actually necessarily be following him. If we just sing about our love for God and neighbor, we might feel loving, but it won't necessarily mean that we're being loving. If we recite our vision and values and emphasize love of God and neighbor, we won't necessarily become people who actually love God and neighbor. So how do we get out of the metaphorical salt shaker? How do we become the kinds of people who let our light shine in the world, spreading the love of Jesus? One of the most effective ways of forming these habits, believe it or not, is what you're doing right now, at least in part. You are participating in a missional Christian community. Now let me explain. A little bit of history. When Adolf Hitler rose to power and began his campaign to rid the world of Jews and Catholics and sexual minorities and anyone else that didn't fit his idea of what the perfect human being should be, It put people's values and ethics to the test who lived around him. There are too many sad stories of Christians who were complicit for far too long as Hitler methodically implemented his agenda of genocide. And if you were to ask most of these Christians about their values, uh, about love of neighbor and self, about being everyone made in God's image, I am sure that most of them would have been in hearty agreement with those statements. They would have taught these values and truths to their children and catechism. Their pastors would have preached sermons supporting the values of love for everybody. But when it came time to hide and smuggle Jews and other minorities uh, from the clutches of the Nazis, there was only a rare minority of people who actually risked to do that. In the book Kingdom Ethics, which is co-authored by a Christian ethicist and a moral philosopher, there's an attempt to describe what factors actually made a difference when you looked at communities who helped hide Jews and other minorities from the Nazis and those that did not. And they study these communities of Christian people who went out of their way to rescue Jews during the Holocaust. And what they found has been shaping the way that I think about church and ministry for almost two decades now. They found that what mattered most, more than a specific denomination or, or, or specific creed, were the actual moral and ethical practices of the community. And specifically, there were four dimensions that made a huge difference. Here they are. First, rescuers were far more likely than non-rescuers to have grown up with parents who modeled responding to the needs of others in a caring and generous way. And they served as positive examples of this moral conduct. What's interesting in this study is that they found entire small towns who all seemed to be people who aided others, while just a mile away there was other small towns who did not aid people. And so they're looking at these communities of people, and they found that communities 
that modeled this for each other, it, it inspired them to all kind of be like that. Again, this is why I believe so strongly in intergenerational ministry. It's why I love having people of all ages worship together and to do ministry together. We have had, um, how old was Eliana when we went to Mexico? I mean, she was under a year old, so we had like, the, like a literal little baby. Uh, we have young people, and I can't remember, 70 two or four, I, I can't remember how old Frank was at the time, but um, we had this massive spectrum of people go to Panama and Mexico, when we do serve Bellingham, when we try and do uh, uh, projects around town, we try and do things that include all ages so that we can model that for one another. I think that's really important. Second, rescuers were more likely than non-rescuers to have come from families who knew one or more Jewish people, right? So it's about relationships with a diverse group of people. The echo chamber of your Insta followers probably won't help you get different perspectives unless you actively seek that out. And you start following people from different news sources than you're used to, and you know what I'm saying. But by default, the algorithms are set up to get you in a little bubble. The church is one of the weirdest places because as long as we make Jesus the center of our relationships, we can share community with differing political views, differing views on the interpretation of scripture, and a wide range of cultural distinctions and interactions. Like, it's just a weird place. A lot of us don't like the same sports teams, the same food, the same politicians, even in this small community. And it's, it's interesting, well, what holds us together? Well, it's basically right here, our common baptism and common table in Christ. It's the word of God. It is our common Holy Spirit. And I think that that's a beautiful thing. There are very few communities on earth that can hold all these weird people together under one banner. I, you guys are weird. I'm not, but I'm just saying. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty impressive. Pretty impressive. Just kidding. All right, third, people from rescuing communities knew at least one or two people who were of a rescuing mindset. So in other words, their community strengthened their tendency to do the right and loving thing. So not only did they have a family member who modeled compassion and generosity and courage, but the community modeled that as well. So who you spend time with shapes who you become. It's just a thing. And so if you spend time with people who live for themselves, you're going to find a way to rationalize selfishness. If you're part of a church that talks a lot but doesn't do anything, you'll end up missionally frustrated. And if you're part of a church that does all of these great things in the community but isn't rooted in Jesus and his word and the sacraments and worship, you'll probably find yourself burned out because you'll be doing those things out of a place of the flesh and not the spirit. And one of the most effective ways of developing the way of Jesus is to spend time in prayer and in the scriptures, which you get a little bit of here. You get maybe a little bit more of it in, if you're part of a small group or a spiritual friendship. Um, Mondays, we started this thing called School of Prayer right here downstairs at 10 a.m., a little pitch right there, but that's a great way to do a little more praying. So there's, there's these little extra things that help get us in contact with the word of God and, and, and with, with the spirit of God. 
And finally, compared to non-rescuing communities, those who were more inclined to risk their own health and safety to help Jews in the Holocaust were from warm, hospitable families and churches. Hospitality might seem like a small thing. It might seem like a very small thing, but it is a quality of God that is repeated over and over and over again in Scripture. And one of the most beautiful metaphors of heaven, of the new creation in, the cha- in, in Isaiah, is a banqueting table. And it describes all of these details, like choice meats and foods and fruits and wine overflowing and company, and the nations will be there. You've got diversity, and it's a meal. And I can get down with the vision of heaven that's a meal. I, I like to eat. And, and, and so showing that hospitality is mimicking such an important character quality of God. And I think what we have to come to realize is that everyone, everyone we meet is in need no matter how much money they have or what their, what their social situation is, what addictions they face, it does not matter. Every person has a need for community and hospitality. We all need relationships. And hospitality is the gift that provides safe and inviting space for relationships to form. It's what Christy was talking about, trying to build that culture into the youth program. Hospitality is part of shalom, the very peace of God. It's a lot of what it has to do with being salt and light. Lord, thank you for calling us, not only by name, salt of the earth and light of the world, and not even by title, but in some way when we follow you and you redeem us, it's like you ontologically change us. You change the consistency of who we are on the inside. Our identity, despite what we might think about ourselves, our identity to you is salt of the earth, light of the world. You have declared us to be a blessing. Would you help us to be thankful for that? As we look in the proverbial mirror, would you help us to believe that about ourselves? And Holy Spirit, will you help us to see the ways in which we can, we can live it out in our life? Thank you for pulling us up on stage, for calling us onto the field of play, for calling us off of the sidelines, for calling us past a religion and making us part of your movement. Amen.